Welcome to The Time Machine with Trish and Mike. I'm Mike. And I'm Trish. And we're glad you're with us once again as we explore the unique, wonderful, and weird stuff that happened back in the day. Because that's the whole, like, time machine part of the show. Right. You know. Yeah. Gotta explore those random trivia bits. Exactly. How are you doing today, Trish? I am good. I can't believe we're rolling into, you know, Valentine's Day weekend here. Yes, it is. It is going to be coming up here very, very shortly. I know you're at least happy it has begun to warm up a bit because I know it was quite chilly up there this past weekend. Polar vortexes are the worst. And every year I don't know why it's surprising like it happens every year around this time that the the Arctic air will kind of slip down into Canada. But every year you're just like, again, we just went through this. It seemed like not that long ago. See, we do get the polar vortexes to come all the way down here to Florida. Obviously, they're not <laughs> quite as cold as they are yeah. when they're hitting you. And can't, they, have, they have a long way to go by the time they get here. But we that's then that's when we do get the cold blasts of... That's not fun. You know, like we get close to freezing or... This is when the iguanas fall? Yes, this would, this would be yeah. when the iguanas <laughs> oh, no. fall. The poor iguanas. <laughs> I, 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 don't think it, I don't think iguanas would do well in, in uh, Alberta. No, they would not. Not it's. Uh, we've had temperatures in the minus 40s and some areas had minus 50s last week. And that's so, Celsius. And minus right? 40 here is minus 40 there. <laughs> It doesn't matter what the number is. If there's a minus in front of it, it's cold. It's cold. <laughs> so I'm very happy to see the end of that polar vortex and warmer temperatures. So that's the part where I'm going to start getting, eh, because we're getting towards the end of winter, which means spring is here. And I know you get excited because, you know, mm-hmm. it's a lot more comfortable up there. But that means to me... That we're getting close to summer and it's just going to be like 90 degrees all the time. And that's too hot. I like it. Like we've discussed this before. I like it when it's around 70. So 21 Mm -hmm. here. That's perfect. That's that's good. I would be good with that. But yeah, I'm an autumn person. So yes, I I like autumn because it means winter is coming (laughs) for us, which I don't we don't have a Game of Thrones story to talk about today, but we do have another royalty yes person and it's not a member of the tutors it's not a member of the tutors although february 11th today in 1531 henry tudor becomes the supreme head of the church of england so of course there's always a tudor story isn't there (laughs) there's always a tudor story but we're actually talking about an egyptian royalty on february 16th 1923, we have Howard Carter, the English archaeologist, opening up the final chamber into King Tutankhamun's tomb, like the royal tomb room. So our story actually starts uh, quite a few years earlier. 
uh, when Howard Carter arrived in Egypt in 1891, he's convinced that there is at least one more undiscovered tomb in the Valley of the Kings, and he believes it is of King Tutankhamun, where very little of him about him was known until, of course, this discovery, or King Tut, as we like to call him, who lived around uh, 1400 BCE and died still while he was a teenager. Carter's going to be backed by the very wealthy and enthusiastic Lord Carnarvon, and Carter searched for five years without success. In early 1922, Lord Carnarvon is done kind of paying for this expedition, and he wants to call off the search. But uh, Carter is convinced to hold out for one more year. In November 1922, it paid off. They find the debris, uh, among the debris, some steps to an entrance to this tomb. And on February 16th, under the watchful eye of a number of important officials, he opens the door to this final chamber of the kind of tomb room, throne room. I'm not exactly sure what the official title would be called. And he has those very famous words when Lord Carnarvon asks, can you see anything? And Carter replies, yes, wonderful things. Really, really interesting, the artifacts that they find inside. There's actually a sarcophagus with three coffins nestled one inside the other. The last coffin is made of solid gold and will contain the mummified body of King Tut. Among the riches are going to be uh, golden shrines, jewelry, statues, a chariot, weapons, clothing, all perfectly preserved. And they are now in a permanent home at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. And it took like 80 years, but we started making movies based on mummies. Yeah, you know, then the whole mummy rage <laughs> happened. Mummies were really popular during this, in the Victorian time period in England. You would actually per purchase a mummy and then have unwrapping parties in your parlor, which is horrifying to genuine historians because they would just sit in the parlor and just like unwrap a mummy without proper procedure or gloves or anything and just discover what they discovered You're like okay and everybody thought having zoom parties during covid was a bad bad idea yeah, yeah. i can think of worse things I, especially yeah. when there's curses involved right because king tut had a very famous curse uh supposedly or written on his sarcophagus that said if anyone disturbs the king then a curse will befall them and there's quite a few individuals that are linked to the curse although i don't know whether or not in your opinion or our listeners opinions they would actually be a connection because some of them are a little far-fetched well it's like with anything you find you know coincidences or hmm. you know other things but sometimes there's seemingly more to the stories well with mysteries we love making connections don't we right because that's the only thing you can do yeah, yeah. you gotta cut, try to piece it together somehow yeah so some of the famous ones are Lord Carnarvon, right, the, the uh, financier. He accidentally tore open a mosquito bite while he was shaving, and he ends up dying of blood poisoning shortly after they opened the tomb. Um, six weeks after the press started reporting the mummy's curse. So, of course, this kind of drove the idea of the curse being a, a real thing. And legend has it that when he died, all of the lights in his house mysteriously went out and his dogs howled, and then the dogs also died. So you're like, that's a little spooky. That's That's... Okay, it's spooky, but can we prove that? I mean, was electricity stable back then? I mean, exactly. I, I don't, don't know. know. Who knows? Okay. Um, All right. What, what else you got? 
Howard Carter is going to give a paperweight to his friend, Sir, I- or Sir Bruce Ingham. And the paperweight appropriately, or maybe inappropriately, consisted of a mummified hand wearing a bracelet that was supposedly inscribed with the phrase, Curse be he who moves my body. His house is going to burn to the ground not Ooh. long after receiving the gift. Uh, when he tried to rebuild it, it was then hit with a flood. But nothing happened to him. Just his home was destroyed. Okay. Well, it's time to move. Build your house in a different area. Also, get rid of the mummified hand. Right. And I never discovered where this mummified paper, like hand paperweight, if it ended up back in Cairo. Because a lot of things were then given back to Egypt. I, yeah, I'd go chuck this thing in the Nile River somewhere. Oh, oh no. I, I, would, I would want that thing far away from me. <laughs> Uh, we have a American uh, financier who, by the name of Gould, who was a railroad executive who visited the tomb once they opened it in 1923. He fell sick almost immediately after visiting, and he never recovered, and he died of pneumonia a few months later. A few minutes later? few months, sorry. A few months later. Okay. That's yeah. like, geez, that's like super pneumonia. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> um, Lord Carnarvon's half-brother. Aubrey Herbert suffered from King Tut's curse, supposedly just by being related to him because he had never visited the the tomb. He had never been in Egypt, but he had a genetic illness that made him go blind. And a doctor felt that it was his bad teeth that was causing the blindness. So the dentist pulled them all out and he ended up dying six months after his half brother from septus due to the dental surgery. They attribute this to the curse. You know, I, I have to get a tooth pulled this week, so maybe we should should move on from we should King move Tut. On. I, I don't I don't want <laughs> I, I don't want to take our chances by talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I am teasing when I say that. Do, do you have something else on King Tut? <laughs> I got four more, <laughs> so bear with me. I do have to get a teeth pulled, but a teeth <laughs> well, pulled. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, 1920s dental to 2020, you'll be okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Although 2021 is what I'm more concerned about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Wait, did I say 2000s? You said 2020. No. Oh, well, 2020s. Okay. All right, Into fine. the 20s. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're okay. You're good then. Um, American Egyptologist Aaron Ember was friends with many of the people who were present when the tomb opened. And he dies in 1926 when his house in Baltimore burns down less than an hour after he and his wife hosted a dinner party. He had escaped, but then was encouraged by his wife to go back in and save his manuscript. And when he went back in to get the his manuscript for his book, he ends up perishing in the fire. Do you want to know the name of that book, Mike? What is the name of that book? The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Yeah, that sounds... Yeah, that's. But I don't know. Can a curse really be attributed three years later? Do curses have a time limit? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm not a curse expert, but you know, <laughs> it, like our curses. Is it just some of the stuff just happens and you right? Bad things looking... happen to people all the time. Right, like you talk about, you know, the guy getting sepsis or the guy getting pneumonia. Like these are the things that happened to people back then and they didn't have mm. the treatments that we do now. Are things yeah. cursed? I don't know. You know, I mean. You just, and when you think of a curse, you tend to think like, okay, like kind of more immediate. Cause now the next story or the next individual that ended up passing away uh, died in 1929. So Richard Bethel's Lord Carnarvon's secretary 
and was the first person behind Carter to enter the tomb. And he dies um, after being found smothered in his room at an elite London gentleman's club. And they never discovered who murdered him. See, now, can you really tie that together? Because maybe he just stiffed somebody on a bill or something one night. Yeah, that could be totally attributed for a whole gamut of other reasons. Yeah, so I don't know that yeah. I would link that one. That that one, of of all the victims of this curse, that one seems to be the most of a a stretch. Yeah, well, and the half-brother I would add, too. It's like, really? Yeah. He wasn't even anywhere near it. This one might be Sir Archibald Reed, a radiologist, merely x-rayed Tut before the mummy was given to museum authorities. And he gets sick and dies the next, uh, or he gets sick the next day, and he dies three days after x-raying King Tut. Do we know what he died from? Nope. Just he got sick. They didn't. They didn't list what his illness was. Because x-rays were still a relatively new thing at this mm-hmm. point. Did he maybe overdose on radiation or something from the x-ray, perhaps? Right, or that pneumonia that was going around that yeah. uh, Carnarvon got? I don't know. And then Carter himself, he never had any mysterious illnesses. His house never fell victim to any disasters. He wasn't linked to any odd mysteries or murders. He actually ends up dying of, of lymphoma at the age of 64. Okay, well, that that seems, you know, especially for the time, yeah. fairly that's normal. Like fairly you know. decent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's we not didn't have a... cancer treatments like we do now. Right. So, so okay. And his tombstone, tombstone even seems to defy the curse by saying, uh, what this is what's inscribed on it, may your spirit live... May you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. Okay, then. Well. Yeah, pretty. Yeah. May your eyes behold happiness, Trish. That's a nice thing to put on a tombstone, actually. It's kind of pleasing. I like it. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Speaking of eyes beholding happiness and exploring, uh, one of your favorite photos from space was taken on February 14th, 1990, and that was the infamous pale blue dot photograph. See, and I love that photograph just because on one hand, it makes you feel a little lonesome because you're you're realizing just how insignificant and tiny we are. But on the other hand, it's so beautiful. You're like, this is the vastness of, of the universe and we're a part of it. It is. It really is... A- I mean, is is it a great photograph? It's it's really not, if we're being honest. Right. It's here. very grainy. It's very, very grainy. Although they did release an updated version last year where they went back and enhanced it a bit and tried to modernize it a bit. Hmm. Uh, you can see a little bit more of the Earth. I mean, you can't see any detail. I mean, we're still talking about the Earth looking to be the size of a pixel because this this photograph was taken from about 3.7 billion miles or 6 billion kilometers from Earth. So it was taken on Voyager 1, which had been at that point in service for about 13 years and was originally intended to fly past Jupiter and Saturn and everything. And as it was getting towards the edge of our solar system, they had it take a picture of Earth. And so that's why the Earth is so teeny, 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 tiny in this picture. Which is just incredible. Like, I don't know. The whole idea of the vastness of space is just so, you know, incomprehensible. Yeah. You know what else is incomprehensible about Voyager 1? Uh, like I said, it had launched 13 years prior to this picture being taken. It was launched in September of 1977. 
-hmm. it is still in use today, some 43 plus years later. And billions and billions and billions of miles away. <laughs> yes, this this thing is actually <laughs> traveling at about 40,000 miles an hour or 64,000 kilometers an hour in space. Yeah, we calculated 17 kilometers per second or 11 miles per second. Yeah, I mean, that is moving. That's fast. <laughs> yeah, that is fast. So, for example, yeah, it's going 40,000 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. That and you and I are about 2,800 miles apart from each other. So 28, we could, in theory, if we traveled as fast as Voyager 1 is currently traveling, we could make seven round trips between you and I in an hour. That's mind-boggling. That is That's fast. pretty crazy. That is... We could be together in less than five minutes. Oh, can you imagine if we could have that kind of technology? That would be incredible. I don't like, know if I want to go that fast, though. That's a little... I mean, in space, there's no friction. So you wouldn't... Right. There would be no feeling of going quickly. Right. And you'd have to figure by the time you could launch... Now, granted, we're talking 40,000 miles an hour, 64,000 kilometers. It's already in motion. So in order for you to take off from here and land up there in, in Alberta, you're going to lose time. So it would take more than five minutes. And there's, I, I couldn't imagine trying to get to that speed. You yeah. know what I mean? In, in that short of a distance, because by the time you'd even get close to going 40,000 miles an hour, you'd have to be slowing down already. Yeah. To have your descent. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Unless they just like throw you out the plane <laughs> with a parachute. Be like, oops. Good luck. Well, we, we, we mistimed that by a second. You're going to actually land in Saskatoon. Oh, ah, I could enjoy Saskatoon. They have a Fuddruckers there. Oh, we have Fuddruckers here. Yeah. What, what, that's, such cool. a, that, that's kind of an odd chain that Canada and, and the U.S. It. have. <laughs> like, like, of course, you have McDonald's and, and you have things like right. that. But I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought Fuddruckers was a, a chain in Canada. Well, and... I I remember so when I moved here, people said that there used to be one in Edmonton, but I've only ever been to the the one in Saskatoon. I just had a Domino's open like five minutes from my house last week. A dom? Did you not have a Domino's there before? Uh, not that close. When oh. so the house I'm I'm at, we had a Domino's that used to deliver here, but they changed their delivery zone. This was years and years and years and years ago. And they said that, oh, we're, there's going to be a new one opening nearby you that will start delivering to you soon. Now, legit, this was like five, six years ago. So anytime I ever wanted Domino's, I had to go pick it up because they wouldn't deliver to my house. And so <laughs> a couple of months ago, I noticed when I was driving around, they were building one. And I'm like, oh, I'm excited. And so it finally opened this week. So and now I you can was, get delivery. I can get Domino's delivered. Yeah. And growing up in Nova Scotia, we didn't have a lot of the things that the major parts, like even in Halifax, would like, I guess I say growing up in Nova Scotia, growing up in rural Nova Scotia. Right. Halifax is like a relatively modern big city, rather. Yeah. And it's, but it's still three hours away from me. And like, unless you were going into Halifax for a major appointment, we didn't ever really go. So I just spent most of my time on Cape Breton Island with my grandparents. Do they have Domino's in Edmonton? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have okay. Domino's. Yeah. Okay. And I remember being, I don't know, do you guys have Little Caesars? 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I remember when I moved to Alberta, I was like really excited about Little Caesars, <laughs> <laughs> which is ridiculous. It's like trash pizza, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, that it is. But, you know, th- they have a thing here. And I don't know if they do this in Canada or not, where they do a $5 hot and ready pizzas. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't know yep, if that was a thing that. up there or not. Yeah. That's not a bad deal. It would be an excellent evening when we would walk to pick up our hot and ready pizza and the Blockbuster was right next door and you'd pick out your movie mm. and get your, uh, the, there was a grocery store nearby too, so you'd get your treats and then walk home. Good times back in 07. See, the Blockbuster that I grew up going to had a pizza hut next to it. Oh. So like you literally, you could, better. see, you could go and order your pizza walk next door to Blockbuster and, you know, get your movies or your video game or whatever you were going to get. And then walk back to Pizza Hut, get in your car and go home. It was, yeah, it was a good, good time. Times. And when I say it was literally next door, it was literally next door in the shopping center to one another. So it was perfect. Super convenient. Mm-hmm. I miss Blockbuster. Now I think I drove by the old Blockbuster and it's like a bank or something or a furniture store. So the, sad. The old Blockbuster that I grew up going to is now a pawn shop. Oh, that's a sad but sometimes it can be turned into a nice thing that's cool but yeah well and what's kind of interesting is the color scheme of this pawn shop is that blue and kind of yellowish gold color so Mm -hmm. it visually kind of still looks a little bit like a blockbuster oh that's nice yeah leading that discussion of technology into actually it ties in nicely with movie rentals is kind of the decline of movie rentals because of online streaming. And we have a major milestone with some online streaming with February 14th, 2005, with the launch of YouTube. Where you can actually rent movies now, just like you could at Blockbuster. Which is very strange. Remember when it first first launched, you could only have 10-minute limits? Yeah. There would be no way you'd be streaming a whole movie. Oh yeah, though there there would be no way back then. No. Of course, that didn't. That, back before things were regulated, people would put anything up there, and you'd have anything like you know in segments. So, say somebody did put a movie up there, it'd be like you know, oh here's uh, Ghostbusters Part One, Ghostbusters Part Two, Ghostbusters Part Three. <laughs> you know, be like you'd have to find the playlist of it all before YouTube took it down. <laughs> right. And you could do Keep Vid. Keep Vid was a website where you could download your youtube videos because i used to do that with teaching i download them to save yeah i i don't know if that was the site i used but i had different programs or something that i would use to download videos which is interesting because in canada it's illegal to upload things but it's not illegal to download like even currently or at the time just in yeah and generally it's just the law like if you if you upload something to the internet that is copyright or license then you're breaking the law but you can download it if it's already online so how are canadian youtubers a thing if they can't legally upload videos oh i mean like because they they own the license i'm talking like uh if we uploaded like avengers endgame oh, like that okay, would be illegal okay. to upload a licensed product copyrighted copyrighted materials. yeah i gotcha okay yeah okay um What I thought was interesting when I double-checked kind of a little bit about YouTube was that although it launched on February 14th, the very first video was not uploaded until April 23rd, 05. That kind of makes sense. You can launch a site and it takes a while to maybe finish working out the the kinks or whatever. Yeah, and I guess you want to launch it first to get investors and things like that before you actually release it to the public. Yeah, like proof of concept. Yeah, the first video was actually uploaded by YouTube co-founder Jawad Karim, who posted an 18-second video that is still on YouTube, 
entitled Meet Me at the Zoo. It's a video of him at the San Diego Zoo saying, you know, a really cool thing about elephants is that they have really, really, really long trunks. And that's all it is. It's just standing in front of a bunch of elephants. It's had over 150 million views. And today it is still the only video on his channel. <laughs> I literally just clicked on it right now. And I there he is in front of the elephants. Yeah. I just thought that was so interesting. And he actually updated that video by saying, is it time to return to the zoo? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. He has 1.6 million subscribers to his channel. To that one video. Yeah. On his channel. I guess people people are waiting patiently for you to go back to the zoo. Well, 16 years <laughs> is a long time to wait. It's like, what about the other animals at the zoo, man? Right? Yeah. So YouTube's now launched in more than 100 countries. Another interesting fact, more than 70% of YouTube is watched uh, on a mobile device. Over 2 billion logged in users visit YouTube each month, which I thought was interesting. I'm like, oh, right. Not everyone has a channel or a profile and logs in. I only recently right. started being a logged in user just this year. Yeah, I started being a logged in user maybe a couple of years ago just because it got to be easier to subscribe rather than yeah. remembering there's like when they start introducing feeds, subscription feeds, that's when I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, this this makes sense because now I don't have to go and search for all these people. I can just find them in one On single yours. page. Yeah. Yeah. See, and I had to learn to be a logged in user, obviously, because of distance learning with um, COVID. I had to upload videos for my students to watch. But then also my daughters were online and they were subscribing to all these really stupid things. <laughs> so I had to learn to log in and like unsubscribe them because I would get alerts and my students would be like, why is, you know, I don't know, like cheeky monkey 23 on your feed, Miss K? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll go ask my 10 year old. <laughs> Did you say how many videos are watched every day? So there are 5 billion videos watched per day and that it they've calculated that 300 hours per minute is uploaded a video. That is a lot of content. It's a lot of content, especially since I I like using YouTube to watch. I don't necessarily upload a whole lot to it. So for me it's like who's uploading and what are they uploading? <laughs> Why? I don't upload really. I, I watch content, but although this show will eventually be on YouTube, there's a little, little, little tease, little tease. We, we're working on getting that set up. So I'm just saying, if YouTube's more your thing, you'll be able to yeah, keep that in mind. Listen. Yeah. So coming soon, more information on that to come. One of the things when you upload a video to YouTube is it gets filtered through to see if there's any copyrighted material or anything like that in it. And that takes us to our next story, the establishment of the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, more commonly known as ASCAP, was established on February 13th, 1914. And what ASCAP does is they monitor public performances for members' music through broadcasts or live performances and tracks to ensure that the creators are getting paid for the use of their content. So basically the way their business model works is they collect licensing fees from the users of music created by ASCAP members and distributes that licensing fees back to its members through royalties. So, for example, when a song is played, the user of the song doesn't have to directly pay the creator or the copyright holder for the mm -hmm. song, and the copyright holder, the music creator, whatever, does not have to build a radio station or whatever. So ASCAP basically works as the middleman in between to keep track and figure all this out. 
Uh, they did, however, are you ready for this, Trish? They threatened to sue the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts for singing ASCAP copyrighted songs at camps. What? Who's going to do that to little kids at camp? You, you just thought Girl Scout cookies were expensive now. Could you imagine if they had to pay off uh, ASCAP Royalties for... <laughs> right. Oh, no. The, the, oh. Price of the, the price of the Girl Scout cookies would double. Uh, I'm eating Girl Scout cookies. My shipment arrived this week, so I'm, I'm very happy. Because they, they did them all online this year. You could order them online. Like your Girl Scout or whatever could send mm-hmm. you a direct link. So they still get the credit for the sale. So they get the credit great. for the sale and I get the cookies. So See, and I used to be involved in Girl Scouts, not as a girl, as a leader. But we only have like three kinds of Girl Scout cookies here where you have a plethora. <laughs> yes, we do. We have, I think, like probably about eight or nine different flavors of, of cookies. See, if it's not Thin Mint season, then I don't really care. We do do have Thin Mints, but we have like other stuff. And I'm okay paying for them to go to camp, but I don't want to pay for royalty fees. (laughs) Right. What's interesting that I discovered as a difference between America and Canada in terms of copyright law is the copyright term. So in the United States, it's the author's lifetime plus 70 years. Mm -hmm. Um. If then the copyright persists, so if the work was a work for hire, then the copyright persists for 120 years after creation or 95 years after publication, whichever is shorter. For works created before 1978 in the US, copyright terms get more complicated, and um, the article I was reading didn't get into it. In Canada, it's much simpler. It's just the author's life plus 50 years. We don't make a, there's no cutoff date or, or differentiate between. Um, a date like 1978 for whatever reason. Right. And I think there's going to wind up at some point having to be a reorganization of those rules and laws are going to change because we're getting, there's so much content that's been created and we're coming up on. So if you think something from 70 years ago is 1950, well, when you get to the late 1900s, you start having a lot more popular songs and musics. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, songs and movies and whatnot. So there's going to have to be a reevaluation of the terms for copyright law, I think, here in America, because, you know, something old like a, a say, like a hymn from church that was written back in the 1800s or the 1700s. OK, but, you know, you start getting into stuff from the 50s, 60s, like, are people going to be able to start doing whatever they want to with Beatles songs? Probably not. Yeah, or Presley songs. Right. So yeah. it's that's going to be a discussion at some point that will have to be hashed out somehow by people more powerful than you and I. Yeah. I'm glad I don't have to deal with any of that paperwork. Yes, for sure. One other thing ASCAP attempted to do back in the mid 2000s, they were potentially trying to seek royalty payments from people that had ringtones of songs. So like back when it was all the rage to download, like when Gaga came out was really popular and you download that song onto your phone, they wanted to charge you a royalty fee? Correct. Because if you're out somewhere and this song starts playing from your phone, it was being considered a performance of the song, just like if you hear a song on the radio or something like that. However, 
The uh, federal court in the U.S. ruled that, quote, when a ringtone plays on a cellular telephone, even when that occurs in public, the user is exempt from copyright liability and the cellular carrier is not liable either secondarily or directly. So basically, when music is being played in public without any commercial purpose, it does not infringe on the copyright. Yeah, like how would they even enforce that? I have absolutely just have like police officers going around and be like, "You, right with that Johnny <laughs> right. Cash ringtone or whatever." Yeah. I can't use Gaga twice because then I'm totally outing myself that yes, I did purchase a Lady Gaga ringtone. I was going to say that <laughs> that was the first one you jumped to. Are, are, did, now, now, and going oh. back to our discussion from last week, did you ever have Holla Batgirl by Gwen Stefani as a ringtone? <laughs> I did not, no, okay. but I did blare that CD a lot in my first car. Uh, one other thing ASCAP wanted to do was request some websites to pay licensing fees for embedding YouTube videos, even though YouTube was already paying licensing fees for the music. Yeah, it seems like double dipping there. And are you ready for this? This was probably the craziest one to me. They were wanting to demand payment from sites like Amazon and iTunes for 30 second streaming previews of music tracks. So you're looking to buy the music. You want to just listen to a preview. Mm -hmm. They wanted to charge Amazon to let you preview to see if you're going to buy it. That seems Correct. ridiculous. They eventually determined that there was no way to enforce this because it was being considered as a promotional vehicle for songs. Yeah, sales. for the purchase so, of the song. Yeah. And they're like, That's no. Silly. I'm all about artists getting paid. Right. Oh, totally. I'm all about artists yep. getting paid what they deserve. But we have to have a little common sense. Well, that and the whole, as we've kind of hit upon a little bit, the whole business structure of the music business has completely changed in the last 10, 15 years with streaming and, and all that. So I get yeah. that. But I mean, come on. That's like, are you going to charge me to watch a movie trailer? You know? Yeah. I don't know. Another artist that got paid back in the day <laughs> is going to be Matahari, who is a Dutch performing artist who is actually arrested February 13th, 1916, over suspicions of being a spy for Germany. What kind of performance artist was she? She's going to bring in the the whole like seductive veil dance to Western society. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah, we're we're a uh, you know, a sensual performing artist. Okay, I got you she, now. She's I was not familiar a, with her work. That's why I was right. curious. Oh, okay. well, let's let's get you up to up to speed on her, Mike. So All right. she's this this Dutch professional dancer and mistress who accepted an assignment from the government of France in 1916 to be a spy for Germany. Now, she's actually born as Margaretha Gerda Tudzel in Ludewerd, Netherlands. And I'm sorry, anyone who has Dutch as their primary language, that I totally butchered that. Uh, and she's I've, born August 7th, 1876. I've checked our demographics. We don't apparently have a listener in the Netherlands. Okay. Well, as long as we so. have no, no Americans, Canadians who are also Dutch linguists, I'll be okay. In the mid-1890s, and this is where she's going to... This is where the connection with the veil dancing. So in the mid-1890s, she boldly answers a newspaper ad for a gentleman who is seeking a bride. So Rudolf McLeod, who is a bald, mustachioed military captain based in the Dutch East Indies, is looking for a wife. She sends a striking photo of herself to him. So despite their 21-year age difference, they wed on July 11th, 1895. She's just shy of 19. 
Now, their marriage is not super stellar. Her husband likes to drink. She's getting a lot of attention from other gentlemen. He doesn't like this. But they do end up having two children in their nine-year marriage. They have a son and a daughter. The couple's son actually ends up dying in 1899 after a household worker in the Indies poisoned him for reasons that we don't know. It still remains a mystery. So no one ever was charged or they never found out what was... Well, I guess the household worker was charged, but they never found out why the household worker did it. By the early 1900s, her marriage has deteriorated. Her husband has fled with her daughter. She ends up moving to Paris and becomes the mistress of a French diplomat who then hatches this idea of her becoming a professional dancer to support herself. So in 1905 in Paris, she begins what is known as the temple dance. And she draws uh, great crowds with this cultural and religious symbolism that she had picked up in the Indies, right? Nothing like cultural appropriation as she builds herself as a Hindu artist (laughs) draped in veils that she very artfully and discreetly drops from her body. That's a good way of putting that. Right? Like, oh, goodness, this would so not fly nowadays. But anyway. She completes her dramatic transformation from military wife to siren of the East when she coins the name Matahari, which means eye of the day in the Indonesian dialect. And she starts taking Paris by storm. It doesn't last, though. After a few years, younger girls start to pick up her performance art and they're younger and more beautiful. And so she is kind of overlooked by a lot of individuals. However, her cavalier travels and liaisons with gentlemen within the British and French intelligence put her in line with these individuals who realize she might be the perfect person to be placed as a spy. So she falls in love with a Russian captain. During their courtship, he's sent to the front where an injury leaves him blind and she's determined to support him. So she accepts this lucrative assignment to be a spy for France. So she goes and and does her shtick, I guess, does her performance. She meets a German attache. She begins dropping, you know, some bits of gossip, hoping to get some valuable information from him. Instead, she gets named as a German spy in his communications to Berlin, which are promptly intercepted by the French. So some historians believe they knew what she was doing and they set her up. Uh, Other people believe that she actually did flip and was a double agent for the Germans. So whatever the case was, French authorities arrest her for espionage in Paris, February 13th, 1917. Uh, They throw her in prison. The trial's kind of a sham. Like they don't even bring some of the key witnesses or key partners in the case to come and testify. And she's actually shocked when she is found guilty. She says, a courtesan, I admit, a spy, never. I have always lived for love and pleasure, is a direct quote from her. But within 45 minutes, they find her guilty, and she just says it's impossible. And she's actually executed by firing squad on October 15th, 1917. She's dressed in a blue coat, accented by a tricorner hat. She arrives at the Paris execution site with her minister and two nuns. After bidding farewell to these people that walked with her to the site, she walks briskly to the designated spot where the firing squad will aim at her. She turns to face the firing squad, waves her blindfold, and blows the soldier a kiss before they instantly kill her. So very Mm. dramatic life. Wow. Right? Can you imagine the draw? Like, so there's already so much drama in just her early life. You add in the espionage. Yeah. You add in, is she a double agent? Why did they just want to, you know, set her up? 
And then I, to have this kind of performance even at the end. I feel like there, this is a movie waiting to happen. I know. There have been movies made about her. Nothing in modern, you know, in the last 20 years. So I think it's time to revisit. Oh, for sure. Because we, we're to the point now in society that we remake stuff from 10 years ago. So, you know, her life story is definitely due for a, a reboot at this point. Well, if YouTube's going to revisit the zoo, I think Hollywood needs to revisit Matahari. For sure. I, I agree. She was definitely a mysterious um, a woman surrounded by mystery. And this whole episode seems to be very much filled with mysteries because I have another one for you. Oh, I, ha I have one for you after yours. But please, ladies first. OK, well, you're such a gentleman. Thank uh, you. you know that we have uh, the CFL versus your NFL, right? Correct. Which my bucks were victorious in the Super Bowl on Sunday. Let's talk about the CFL, shall we? Okay, well, we shall. We don't have the Super Bowl, but we do have the Grey Cup. That's our big game and trophy here in Canada. So on the night of December 20th, 1969, someone is going to break into Lansdowne Park offices of the Ottawa Rough Riders, um, which they're no longer called the Ottawa Rough Riders, but that's another point. They had recently won the championship. And these individuals stole the Grey Cup from a display case. Oddly enough, the thieves were all but ignored. League officials were basically worried about the sentimental value of the cup. And they'll just like, we'll just make a replica in time for the next Grey Cup if we don't find it. So police just kind of hoped it was a prank and that the pranksters would eventually turn the trophy in. And in true Canadian style, it happened. February 16th, 1970, the Metro Toronto Police received an anonymous tip about a key inside of a phone booth uh, at Parliament and Dundas and a locker at the Royal York Hotel where the Grey Cup was actually being held. So the trophy was retrieved, but the pranksters were never caught. So we have no idea who stole it. We have no idea who called and gave the police the tip. We only know that it was being held in the Royal York Hotel and there was a key in a phone booth that opened it and the police got it back. Well... That is certainly <laughs> a mystery for sure. And I have one that might even be a little crazier. Well, and I think you probably have better bets. I mean, that's not super crazy. <laughs> it's just very Canadian. It's like someone stole it and gave it back. The end. <laughs> yeah. So this one actually involves Michael Jordan. Okay. I love Michael Jordan. And a very interesting thing that occurred one night on February 14th, 1992. Jordan and his Chicago Bulls were in Orlando to play the Magic. Okay. Now, everyone knows that Michael Jordan, of course, was famous for wearing number 23. Mm -hmm. Right? That was his jersey. And then when he, he retired, he came back, he wore number 45. But there was a third number that he wore in his NBA career. And he wore it for one game. Only one game? One game only. And wow. that was jersey number 12. Why did he wear a number 12 jersey that night in Orlando? Mm -hmm. Because his jersey dun, 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 went missing. Oh, no. So that's like it was just like kind of the replacement jersey that was just yes. there. It was, oh, a, no. <laughs> it was a stand like an emergency backup jersey. So the Bulls were at the end of a road trip. They'd been on, I believe it was like six game road trip at the time. And they had everything laid out. And everything in the locker room, everything was fine during their morning shoot around. So when they came back to the arena that afternoon to get ready for the game, 
his jersey had gone missing. And they actually started scanning in the crowd to see if they could find somebody in the crowd wearing a Michael Jordan 23 jersey that they would have been willing to let them use for the game. And no one was willing and, to let him use their jersey? Well, that or had was big enough no. that had one that would fit him. Because, you know, he's an athlete, so he's you know pretty big guy. It's not going to be the average size human jersey, you know, at the time. And plus, the early 90s, jerseys weren't quite, they were becoming a thing, but they weren't quite as popular as they are now for people to have. And so they couldn't. They did not uh, have a, they couldn't find one in the crowd for him to wear. So they just had a spare number 12 jersey with no name on the back. That fit and did the trick. That was able to fit and do the trick. Exactly. And so the mystery has always been whatever happened to this jersey. And no one to this day exactly knows what happened. Although it came out a while back that they found out from security that one of their personnel had set up a plan to get the jersey, went through an adjacent locker room, through the ceiling, dropped down into the Bulls locker room, stole the jersey, left it up in the ceiling and was going to go back a couple days later probably to retrieve it. But to the best of anyone's knowledge, that never occurred. So my question is that I'm curious the more I think of this story is because they imploded the old Orlando arena back in 2012. So I'm wondering if that thing was still in it. That it, So he never went back and got it. I mean, that's really smart because you don't want to be found with the stolen goods. Right. Like the night of. Yeah, because then it would be kind of suspicious. So you'd want Very to go suspicious. back a couple days later and get it. So I get but he that. he never went back. But he never apparently went back to get it. So I, what I haven't been able to figure it out is how they came up with that story without ever knowing who did it. Like right, if you, or if you, getting it back. Right. So there's still so many mysteries. And the thing is, Jordan had a bit of, and you think, you know, wearing, you know, a different, Jersey's not going to be that that big of a deal, but you know, to athletes, you know, maybe it doesn't quite fit right or whatever. But it's still not your number; it's not your normal jersey. And Jordan actually kind of had an odd uniform work. He would wear his old University of North Carolina basketball shorts under his uh, Chicago Bull shorts when he played. It was like his own little superstition that he did. Yeah, I was going to say athletes are extremely superstitious about what they wear. Mm-hmm. In fact, he, he's probably the reason that NBA basketball shorts are longer now, because at the time, you know, it, basketball shorts were a lot shorter, but they had to start making his shorts longer to cover his UNC shorts. So he actually influenced the whole style. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Just by In addition to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But on mm-hmm. that night in Orlando, he did not get to wear his number 23 jersey. And... On top of all that, the Orlando Magic were victorious, 135 to 129. Oh, see? How upset would you be? He'd be like, this is why I always wear my jersey. <laughs> exactly. It's a curse. Back Tying it back in. Mm-hmm. And we are going to have to tie this episode up in a bow and give it to you now because we are done. We are out of time. We are. We thank you for listening. And making it to the end of our show. And if you didn't, I hope you have to walk around in wet socks. One wet sock or both? Ooh, one. I like the idea yeah. of one. 
because how that's uncomfortable really is that? annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. You kind of limp a little because you don't want to touch it. You don't want to put your foot like you want pressure on it. Yeah, exactly. I like that. <sighs> that's the worst. That, that's extra but evil. <laughs> all of you listen to the end, so you do not have to be cursed with that affliction. And we thank you very much for joining us this week on the Time Machine. Yes, thank you for joining us. Follow us on Instagram at Time Machine with Trish and Mike. Email us. We'd love to hear from you. Or Time Machine with Trish and Mike at gmail.com. And hit us up with any questions, comments, queries, and freakouts. Did I get that Ooh, right? You're learning. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if you're listening via Anchor, you can actually ask us a question right there on the, the dashboard. Yes. And you can even be part of our show, perhaps. Yeah, we could put you in. Join join us. Yes. And speaking of which, if you are among the uh, people listening to us from India, Brazil, Chile, Mongolia, or the United Arab Emirates, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> I'm serious. We got people that listen to us there. So Yeah. I When like, I saw that, I was very excited. Yes. It's wonderful to have our, our local peeps supporting us, but it's very interesting to see the international community and where everyone's from. Yes. Well, I mean, technically, by definition, since this is a U.S. and Canadian show, it is international by default. But, you know. You know what I outside mean. Outside of North America. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and on that You note, know what I mean. We've been allies for so long. It's just a conglomerate. <laughs> Pretty much at this point, you know. So. <laughs> on that America note, light. We, we better end this before Trish kills me. She'll find a way from 2,800 miles away. Yeah. Sure, I'll just be there in five minutes. Oh, crap. All right. <laughs> we gotta go. We'll see you next time right here on The Time Machine.